what is it to become a Christian? What does it mean to become a Christian? I think in, in the minds of many for several decades and still today, to become a Christian, you simply have to give mental assent to certain propositional statements. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for sinners. I believe in Jesus, and therefore I have eternal life. Now, to be sure, these are essential tenets of the Christian faith. But to reduce becoming a Christian to just giving mental agreement to certain facts falls far short of what the Bible presents as what it means to become a Christian. To become a Christian, it calls for radical repentance, radical repentance from, by which we dethrone every idol in our lives so that God can be God. Whatever comes between us and God, whatever we trust, obey, and love more than God, that needs to be dethroned. That needs to be crushed under our feet. Even as the hymn says, all idols underfoot be trod. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Becoming a Christian involves radical repentance. It also involves whole soul trust in Jesus. A good way to put it is this way. The whole person coming to the whole Christ. If you're to become a Christian and be saved, your whole person needs to come to Jesus. You need to come with your mind. You need to come with your affections. You need to come with your will. And you need to come to the whole Jesus. You need to come to him as priest and savior. You need to come to him as teacher and prophet. And you need to come to him as king and Lord. The whole person coming to the whole Christ. That's what biblical conversion is, Christian conversion. Now, Mark chapter 10, to which I ask you to turn once again, gives us a solid dose of this biblical gospel. You remember from a few weeks ago that a rich young ruler, as we describe him, came to Jesus, presumably seeking eternal life. Eventually, Jesus faces him with this ultimatum in verse 21. He says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Would Jesus be a savior to this man? Absolutely. But Jesus must also be Lord and King. And so the demands of discipleship are steep. And sadly, as you recall, this man is unwilling to pay the price to follow Jesus, and he walks away with sadness. Jesus then looks around at his 12 apostles and he wants to turn this into a teaching opportunity. And so he says this in verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then with progressive clarity, he presses that point. He gives the illustration. It's, it's uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And he gets to the point where he speaks not of the difficulty, but the, of the virtual impossibility of someone coming. And so in verse 27, he ends up saying, looking at them, Jesus said, with people, that is, how can anyone be saved? With people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. There is a human impotence, a human powerlessness to come to God on our own, but God has a potency, God has a power which can override man's impotence. But now Mark continues, and we're going to hear further from the 12 apostles through their perennial spokesman, you guessed it, Peter, right? 
So our text is verses 21 to 30, 28 to 31. After that, we said, we see that Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Well, from this text, I hope to show you three things. Peter's confident claim to true discipleship, Jesus' reassuring promise of reward for true discipleship, and then Jesus' sobering warning concerning true discipleship. So first, Peter's confident claim to true discipleship. Again, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Now, the first thing I want us to see is Peter's evident agreement with Jesus' terms of discipleship. The 11 and Peter had followed that whole scenario closely. They saw when this rich young man came running to Jesus and kneeling before him, ostensibly looking for eternal life. They heard the dialogue between Jesus and this rich man. They listened to the terms of discipleship as Jesus set them forth in all of their uncompromising strictness. They watched the man, unwilling to pay the price, walk away. And no doubt they looked at the countenance of Jesus and they must have seen the pained look of pity and compassion on his face as it says Jesus loved him. But they also noted that Jesus didn't compromise the terms. He stood firm. This is what you must do to follow me. He didn't cut any corners off of the angular demands that he was making upon this young man. Well, how did the disciples respond to those terms of discipleship as they heard Jesus lay them out? Did they think, Jesus, why are you being so hard on this guy? Why are you being so harsh? Isn't that kind of steep, Lord? Were, were they, were they being critical in their hearts about the terms that Jesus was setting forth? The answer of our text is no. Peter speaks here, probably representing the thinking and the sentiments of the other 11, and he seems to have no problem with the terms of discipleship. Can you see that? I mean, he's the one who declared Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he probably understood that as the Christ, as the Son of God, he was worthy of the whole soul devotion of his followers. They didn't seem to have any problem with the terms of discipleship that Jesus had set forth. Peter's question was, have I and my buddies here met those terms? And so we see Peter's evident agreement with the terms of discipleship. But then we see Peter's confident assertion that they had met the terms. Again, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Peter was confident that he and his fellow apostles had met Jesus' terms. He says, behold, calling Jesus' attention to them, we, self-conscious, self-confident attention, us, Lord, look at us. You see, against the backdrop of the ruler's unwillingness to meet the terms, Peter says, we, Lord, unlike that man, we have left everything. And the tense in the Greek is aorist. 
which usually points to a, a once and done action. At one point in the past, we made a definitive break with the past. We have left everything once for all and followed you. There the tense is the perfect tense, indicating an action that begins in the past and continues into the future. Uh, we made a definitive break with the past and we began following you and we're still following you, Lord. We have left everything and followed you. That was true, wasn't it? Turn back for a few minutes to chapter 1, where we have the call of the apostles, verse 16. And as he, Jesus, was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, that was Peter, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, right, one of Mark's favorite words, used 43 times, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. They left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. When he called, they left immediately. They forsook their father, their extended family, their business, all for the sake of Jesus. So Peter's statement is true. He had, they had left all, everything to follow Jesus. They had turned their backs on all that was familiar and comfortable and established as the necessary requirement for following Jesus. Though the rich man was not willing, Peter is saying, we have been willing. And so his question is, okay, Lord, we've been willing, unlike this man, what's in it for us? And so consider next in the outline, Jesus reassuring promise of reward for true discipleship. Verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Before we get to the point of this text, I just want to make a little side note here that notice Jesus says they've done this for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the, uh, I'm sorry, for the sake of the gospel. In Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, he says for the sake, oh, let, let, me, let me clarify here. In Luke's gospel, he says for the sake of the kingdom of God. Here they're doing it for the sake of the gospel. In Luke's gospel, parallel text, they're doing it for the sake of the kingdom of God. I just want to make the point that when Jesus came and brought the gospel, he brought the kingdom. Don't let anybody tell you that the kingdom is a future reality. The kingdom is here. To do something for the sake of the gospel is to do something for the sake of the kingdom. Because when Jesus came and brought the gospel, he brought the kingdom. Now, the kingdom does have a consummation. There's a final stage to the kingdom when Jesus returns. But the kingdom is here. It came with the gospel. But notice first here that Jesus re reaffirms the terms of the gospel. Peter had affirmed that he believed those terms were right. He didn't quibble with them. And Jesus here is reaffirming the terms. In, 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 in a sense, he's saying, look, there are some who will have to give up houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and property 
for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is reaffirming the terms, the terms that he had given to the rich ruler. You've got to sell everything to follow me. These terms apply to everyone. Anything that stands between you and Jesus must go. Now, what did he mean when he said that you've got to give up these things? Well, what he cannot mean is that his followers are to forsake their God-given duties. Jesus doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't call us to follow him by forsaking our God-given duties. So when he says you've got, you may have to leave father or mother, he doesn't mean you need to forsake your duty to honor your father and mother to the degree that you can do that, right? God commands, honor your father and mother. To follow Jesus, he's not saying now you can dishonor father and mother to follow me. God would not contradict himself. Luke actually says that some might have to leave a wife. Now, that doesn't mean you pursue an unbiblical divorce in order to follow Jesus. God doesn't contradict himself. He says, you may have to leave children to follow me. In my judgment, it doesn't mean you ship your children off for months at a time at some mission school. I don't understand why missionaries do that. When God says, fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, how in the name of Christ can you neglect bringing up your children? So in saying that you've got to give up these things, he's not saying you forsake your God-given duties. What is he saying? Well, I think we get some help from another passage, which you probably know well, Matthew 10, 34 to 37. I'll just read those words. You'll recognize them. Matthew 10, 34 to 37. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying when the gospel comes to an individual in a family, it creates inevitable antagonisms between believers and unbelievers. And you will need to choose your loyalty, whether it be to Christ or to even a family member. So suppose you become a Christian and your spouse, husband or wife, says, I don't like this new religious you. I want you to be the person you were before. And I'm not going to continue living with you unless you give up your religion. Well, it's clear. You've got to cling to Christ, though it means losing a husband or wife. Suppose you become a Christian and your spouse agrees to live with you, a la 1 Corinthians 7 but doesn't like your Christ and doesn't like your religion and persecutes you in the home, what do you do? Do you forsake Christ to make peace with your spouse? No, you cling to Christ and try to love and win your spouse to Christ, but you don't let go of Jesus or your commitment to him. You become a Christian and your grown children ridicule you and mock you and perhaps withhold care from you in your old age. What do you do? You don't let go of Jesus. You cling to Christ and endure what you have to endure. You become a Christian and your father becomes so incensed that he disowns you or cuts you out of the will. Now, that may not be realistic for some of us. It may be for some of our Amish brothers and sisters. It's true for Chinese believers. 
It's true of our brother David. David is probably listening right now. Hello, David, over in Athens. If he was disowned. If he went back to his homeland, his family would kill him. But what does he do? Let go of Christ to keep family? No, he holds on to Christ and he loses his family. If he loses the family inheritance, he has a better inheritance in heaven. You get converted and your extended family treats you like the black sheep in the family, the religious oddity, and they gossip about you and they ostracize you. What do you do? You bear it patiently and you're not overcome by their evil, but you seek by grace to overcome evil with good. That's what Jesus is saying. That if it's a choice between any family member and him, he's got to win. Christ has got to be first. So nothing must stand in the way of our devotion to our Savior King. No attachment to houses, farms, culture, homeland, even immediate or extended family must bar us from obedience and loyalty to Christ. We need to love him best and first. But then Jesus reassures. So Jesus affirms the terms. He agrees. Yeah, there are some who may have to lose homes and farms and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters for my sake. He affirms those are the terms. But then Jesus reassuring promise of temporal reward. The terms of the gospel are reaffirmed by Jesus. Peter has reaffirmed those terms. Jesus, in effect, is saying, yes, Peter, these are the terms. You got it right. You left everything. You were right to do that because those are the terms applicable not only to this rich man, but to everyone But now Jesus speaks approvingly of what Peter and the 11 have done. And he gives them this reassuring promise. Jesus said, truly, I say to you. And when he says truly, he's underscoring it like I really mean this. When he says truly, truly, I mean, that's a double emphasis. But he puts the truly there, truly, amen, in the the Greek, from which we get amen, truly, amen, I um. I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus promises a reward. When will this reward come? When will this recompense come? Well, in eternity for sure, but he says it begins right now. In this present age, and let me just say as a side note, when you study the New Testament, you find that it breaks into two epochs, this age and the age to come. A little hint, it can very much inform our eschatology. It has for me. There's this age and there's the age to come. This age is called in Galatians a present evil age. It is the age of earthly mortal existence while we are on this present earth. And Jesus says, right now, in this age, this present evil age, there will be rewards for following me. And let's consider them in two ways, quantitative and then qualitative. Quantitatively, there's reward. Jesus gave a little hint about this back in chapter 3. Remember, he's teaching a group of people, and his mother and brother show up. And they thought that he needed to go to Shady Acres Rest Home, right? He needs a rest. He's pushing too hard. And news comes to Jesus. Your mother and your brothers are here. Remember his response? 
Oh, sorry, I got to stop everything. My mom is here. I got to. No, he said, Who are my mother, my brothers, my sisters? He who does the will of God. He recognized that his true brothers and sisters are the family of God. Though he loved his earthly mother and his earthly parents, he put precedence on his spiritual family. So suppose you become a believer and your siblings, according to the flesh, turn against you, either displaying outward hostility or maybe just a cold ostracism for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Friends, no matter how big your earthly family, and we have some big families in this church, and I know of another one that's even bigger, it doesn't matter how big your earthly family is, there is a bigger one that you inherit in Jesus Christ. All these, see, it's not with just an empty sentimentality that we call one another brother and sister. There's a deep bond that we have in Christ. You heard the expression, blood is thicker than water. You know, I'm closer to my earthly family than just my friends. Well, the blood of Jesus is thicker still. And in Jesus Christ, we inherit a whole family of brothers and sisters internationally. But suppose your mother or father have become hostile to you because of your faith in Jesus, or at least cool toward you since you became a Christian. And there's a distance. And in some cases, there's a complete severance. They can't enter into the deep things of life with you. They don't get you. They can't get you because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He, they don't get you. Your earthly mother and father. But if your earthly mother and father forsake you, God says he will be a father to you. Psalm 27.10, if your earth, father and mother forsake you, the Lord will take you up. He becomes a father to us. And if your mother was not a believer, and some of you women, your mother was not a believer, maybe you lost your mother, and you didn't have a mother to nurture you, to explain your role as a wife and mother, to, to impart to you domestic skills. You don't have a mother either because you didn't have one or because she's an unbeliever and she cut you off because of your faith. In the body of Christ, you inherit a lot of mothers. In his greetings in Romans 16, Paul refers to a certain woman as your mother and mine. Now, it's not his earthly mother. Paul was in his 60s, but some dear older lady was treating Paul like a son, little Paulie. Paulie, I want you to do this. Paulie, make sure you do this. She was a mother to him, and he benefited from that. And one of the blessings of being a Christian is you inherit a lot of mothers, a lot of godly older women who become mothers to young men and even more so to young women, as Titus 2 says, right? Training them to love their husbands and love their children, etc. A lot of older women, middle-aged women, are mothers in Israel. And, and when you come into the church of Jesus, no matter what motherhood you experience or didn't, you get a lot of mothers. Loving older women who are surrogate mothers. And children, Maybe you never married. Maybe you were unable to have children of your own. Or maybe, in line with the context, your own children turned against you and rejected you for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus, you can have spiritual children. Paul said to the Corinthians, I became your father through the gospel. Though you have many teachers, you only have one father. I became your father through the gospel. He said to the Galatians, my children with whom I am again in labor. 
He called Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 to my true child in the faith. You may not have earthly children. You can have spiritual children. If your own earthly children have turned away from the faith, you can, by the gospel, give birth to spiritual children and nurture them. You see, when you leave Jesus, when you come to Jesus, you inherit a big family of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. How about houses and farms? Well, we notice that God never cancels out the principle of private property. But in the body of Christ, we see it in the early church, there's a wonderful sharing. Some may be disenfranchised from farms and property as a result of their commitment to Jesus. That happened in the early church, in the infant church. But we read things like this in the early church, Acts 2.45. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Still in the early church, in Acts 4.34, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. There's a blessed sharing that goes on in the body of Christ. My wife and I, having been a pastor for over 40 years, we have had numerous occasions when generous benefactors, saints, have given us the gift of a vacation, maybe a home that they owned, or maybe money to get away. We have been blessed that way. We give hand-me-down clothes to our children. When our cars get wrecked or in our shop, we loan one another vans and cars, as you have done generously to us in the last several weeks with both of our cars getting retrieved next week. But but we share with one another. And here's the principle. There's not a needy person among them. The haves supply the have-nots, right? If I have and you need, you have it. There's a sense in which what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. Not communism. We have private property, but we share with one another. So abundance flows downhill to meet need. And so whatever you lose materially in terms of farms and houses, Jesus makes it up for you in the body of Christ. And so there's an actual quantitative reward that often comes to us. More brothers and more sisters, more mothers, more children, more homes than we would otherwise have. But let us not discount the qualitative benefit, the quality of life benefit to following Jesus. We have texts such as, and I'll read several texts, Proverbs 15. Have you lost certain things? been forfeited of certain things, been denied certain things because of your loyalty to Christ. Proverbs 15, 16, and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. Yeah, you may have forfeited the fattened ox, but who can make up for, for love as the love that Jesus gives you. In Proverbs 16, 8, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. We have Isaiah 26. Here's another incalculable benefit of following Jesus. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. And yet Isaiah will later say there is no peace for the wicked. How can you measure the value of the peace you have with God, the peace with yourself, the peace that knows that all is well with my soul. This is incalculable. And so there is not only 
quantitative benefit, there is qualitative benefit. Peter, uh, Paul speaks in 1 Timothy 6 of contentment. The writer to Hebrews says, you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property, knowing that you have a treasure in heaven. And so, whatever temporal loss you are caused to suffer, you have the gain of righteousness and peace and contentment and hope the priceless treasures of knowing Jesus Christ. He said, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So there are temporal rewards that more than compensate for whatever you may lose in following Jesus. But then Jesus assures Peter and the 11 of the promise of eternal. Oh, before I mention that, let's not forget, he also throws in persecutions, right? You're going to get all these things, brothers, sisters, farms, houses, and persecutions. Now, is that to temper the reward? It's like, well, there's also persecution. There's a downside to this. Well, persecution is certainly painful and it hurts. But it might be that that's even part of the reward because of what the Bible says when you suffer persecution. Matthew 5, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you wrongly for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the persecution is part of the reward. Yes, you have to suffer in the valley of persecution, but your reward is great for suffering. First Peter 4, 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, rejoice because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So the persecution may actually involve the reward. But not only are there temporal rewards, but there is the promise of eternal reward. He closes by saying, not only these things, but in the age to come, eternal life. When is the age to come? And again, this should inform your eschatology. There is this age and the age to come. When does this age give way to the age to come? Let me show you a, cr a critical text, Luke 20, 34 and 35. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. That's now. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. There's this age, we're marrying, we're giving in marriage. Right, Abby, Ben? Getting married, right? Because we're living in this age. But then in that age, the age of the resurrection, when Jesus, when will we be resurrected? When Jesus comes back, it kicks in the age to come. There's this age, and then there's the age to come. And that's talking about eternity. And in eternity, we have eternal life. Now, be sure that eternal life begins right now, right? Jesus said in, in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life begins right now. It's a quality of life, but there Jesus has in view an endless life of bliss and joy. What has begun in grace will be completed in glory. What awaits us in the age to come? As I indicated before, we have only a fuzzy glimpse of the glory that awaits in the age to come. But you've heard me quote often Romans 8.18, all the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And Revelation 21, 
gives us a clear glimpse of what awaits us. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Friends, the promise of a blessed eternity is enough of a reward to keep us going in this life. And it has sustained the martyrs throughout the centuries. But the third point we must cover is this. Jesus' sobering warning concerning discipleship. He promises reward in this life and in the life to come. But he ends by saying, but many who are first will be last and last first. Isn't that curious? He said that in different places, and it must be understood in its context. In this context, it seems to be a sober warning. Notice, but, Peter, there's great reward now and in the age to come. But, but, Peter, many who are first will be last and the last first. What does he mean? Well, could it be that as Peter was saying, Lord, we've left everything and followed you, that maybe Jesus sensed in Peter a little bit of smug confidence Maybe a little bit of self-righteousness. We're not like this ruler. We have left everything and followed you. It's true. And Jesus didn't mock that. He said, you will be rewarded, Peter, in this life and in the age to come. But, but be careful, Peter. Because you could do something good, but if your motive is wrong, it negates it. And I think Jesus wants to make sure that Peter doesn't have this sense of deservedness this sense of merit, because friends, all the rewards of God to us are rewards in grace. We don't earn anything. We don't deserve. You know, the Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine called, what is it called? Donum superaditum, where some saints were so good that they had excess goodness. And there's a pool that you can, you know, you can draw from. I mean, that's ridiculous. Luke 17, 10 says, the servant when he has done everything, has done only what was expected of him. God owes us nothing. But the, the glorious thing is he gives us rewards, but they're rewards of grace. They're not because we earned it. He could give us nothing and it would be just. But he's so gracious that he actually gives us rewards for the things that we do by his grace. And maybe Peter, Jesus wants to make sure Peter doesn't have a legal heart here. Don't think you've deserved it, Peter. These are rewards of grace. And so be careful, because those who are first will be last and those who are last first. But more general reasons for giving the warning. More broadly, we might say, one may be first in the world, but last in the esteem of God. Jesus said, what is esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In other words, what the world esteems and what God esteems are two different things. And you may be first in the world, esteemed by the world, but last in God's esteem. Be careful. One may be first in time, but last in the quality of their service. Paul refers to himself as born out of due time. He wasn't one of the 12, right? He came to the party late as a, an apostle. But he could say in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God with me. Those who are first in time may be last in the quality of their service. 
You may be first in privilege, but last in faith. The Jews were to receive the gospel first, right? As one of my college Bible professors said, it was a matter of missionary logic. They were the ones who would make sense of the gospel and believe it. So the gospel was to the Jew first. And yet God has populated his church mainly with Gentiles. You may be first in privilege, but last in faith. You may be first in gift, but last in reward. The measure is not how much gift you've been given, but what you do with your gift. When Jesus gives the parable of the talents, he gives five to one, two to another, one to another. The important thing is not how much gift you get, but what you do with your gift. Do you invest your gift? Do you multiply your gift? A person may be first in gift and last in reward. Over the years, Diana has had many violin students, and I can remember at times saying, boy, this, this student is so gifted but she's lazy. And others who are not so gifted, but they work hard and they achieve. You may be first in gift, but last in reward. The important thing is just to be faithful. One thing we know for certain, that among the 12 to whom Jesus spoke these words, there was one who was privileged above so many people on the face of the earth. Privileged to live for three years with God incarnate, privileged to hear with his physical ears the teaching of the Messiah, privileged to see the miracles wrought by Jesus the Messiah, Judas, and yet he would end up in hell, first in privilege, oh boy, but last. And there was another one who was not part of the band of the 12, he was untimely born, came to the party late, and yet could say, I worked harder than all of them and was no doubt commensurately rewarded. Brothers and sisters, a few applications, and then we're done. This passage, once again, gives us another clear presentation of the terms of the gospel, doesn't it? What are the terms of the gospel? Not mental assent to a few facts, but whole-souled repentance, turning from everything that keeps God from being God to you. Repent. Whole-souled faith. All of you coming to all of Jesus. Now, Jesus said that's impossible. Why do we even appeal to people to believe? Because there's a God who has the power and the will to regenerate sinners and to impart repentance and faith. And so I am bold to say to any of you here, maybe some of you children who have not yet put your trust in Jesus, I call upon you in Jesus' name to turn from that, whatever that thing is that's keeping you from coming to Jesus. What do you love? What are you holding on to that is keeping you from coming to Jesus and giving him your life? Turn away from that. Trodden under your feet, that idol, and believe in Jesus, and you will be well rewarded in this life and in the age to come. This passage also calls us to rejoice in the gracious rewards of the gospel. What have you given up for Jesus' sake? Do family members despise you? Are you called to eat at another table because you're on the outs? Do they think you're deceived? What a wonderful family you have inherited in the family of God. Have you lost out on your earthly inheritance? You have an inheritance in heaven. Are you losing a job? For the sake of the gospel, God will provide for you the job he wants for you. Whatever losses and crosses we are called to bear in this life, 
Jesus will more than make up for it in this life and in the life to come. Heaven will be worth it all. Is it the old Bill Gaither song, when it will be worth it all when I see Jesus? And then thirdly, this text also gives us a challenge to consider. Some of our brothers and sisters lose their family. They lose mother and father. They lose brother and sister for the sake of following Jesus. Jesus promises to make it up to them in the church. That means we need to be brothers and sisters to those whose earthly brothers and sisters have cut them off. Some of you older ladies need to be dear mothers in Israel, mothers to those young women who have lost because of the gospel, their earthly mothers. We need to be godly mothers and fathers, or maybe sons and daughters to those whose own sons and daughters after the flesh have rejected them. We have the privilege of being the family of God and being part of the recompense that Jesus promises. And then one other application is this portion of scripture gives us reason to pause and reflect on our lives. Make sure we are not one who appears to be first, but will end up last. Don't trust in where you stand in the world because that's no measure of your status in the kingdom of God. You may have possessions and power and prestige and popularity in the world and yet not be esteemed by God. Pursue the things that God esteems and will reward humility, servanthood, unselfishness, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Don't trust in your years as a Christian. You may be first in time, but last in reward. Just because you've been a Christian many years, how have you been using your gifts for Christ? Has your zeal for Christ waned in later years? Has your service for him trailed off? Are you coasting into heaven? Christians don't coast. We don't retire from the Christian life. We want to go hard to the end. Just because you've been a Christian for a long time, what is the quality of your service for Christ? Don't trust in your privileges. Jesus said to those to whom much has been given of them, much will be required. Don't trust necessarily in your zeal. You can be going 100 miles an hour, but if you're going in the wrong direction, it, it doesn't help. And Paul speaks in Romans 10 of a zeal without knowledge. Have zeal, but make sure your zeal for Christ is informed and directed by his word. And don't rest in your giftedness. You may be greatly gifted, but what are you doing with your gift? It doesn't matter if you're a five-talent, two-talent, or one-talent Christian. The ultimate determiner of reward will be how faithful were you to use your five talents, your two talents, your one talent. And so use your gift well to build up the body of Christ and to win the lost. And finally, these words guide us in how we should look at others. There may be many who appear to be running first who will end up last. I dare say that there have been many eloquently gifted preachers who have proven to be immoral hypocrites. They appear to be first ranked and they end up last. But perhaps a dear wife or husband caring for an ailing spouse or child hour after hour, day after day, year after year, may end up first in the final day. Let's pray.
Thank you, Jesus, that you not only give us eternal life, but you actually reward us for the things that we do only by grace. You are so gracious. Help us, Lord, to make sure that we are don't appear to be first, but are really last. And help us to be the body of Christ, the family of God to one another, to make up for those things that are forfeited by some of our brothers and sisters. And help us to do it all for your glory and in your strength, we pray in Jesus' name.